Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 107. We're recording on Thursday, May 21st. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we are coming to you from bookriot.com. Good morning. Good morning. So we have a, we're going to do something di- a little bit different today. The, the, the regular show will feel completely regular, um, but Rebecca and I are both huge uh, Mad Men fans, uh, Michelle as well. Michelle and I have been talking about Mad Men all week. We've watched the finale a couple times, gone back and watched some of our favorite episodes. We've got a lot of Mad Men feelings and thoughts that we oh need to gosh. get out. Oh my gosh, so many. Bob, but, I know, is tired of hearing about it. <laughs> so we don't want to pollute the regular show, but if you're interested in our Mad Men talk, what we're going to do is listen. The, we're going to do the regular show all the way through our outro and the music, and then the music will stop, and we'll have our we'll have some Mad Men discussion after the music is over. So if you notice that you're uh, there's still you know thirty minutes or so once you're to the end of the episode, that's what's there. If you want to listen, great. If you don't want to, we totally understand this is off the board, but uh, we thought some of you out there might be having Mad Men feelings as well. It's as close to like literary fiction as TV gets. So I can, and we're both TV fans, so mm-hmm. it's uh, not out of character. And we don't have to justify this. If you don't want to listen to it, don't listen to it. But no, I think some no, of you might no. enjoy it. I'm so very pleased to be able to talk TV with smart bookish people. Yeah, and if you, and, and of course, if you have comments about what we say there, we'd love to hear those as well. Um, I got follow up. I just put in oh, as Rebecca oh, right. was reading, um, but a lot of you wrote in about. Um, we talked about the number of reviews on Amazon is whether or not they're a proxy for sales, or how are these books that we've never heard of garnering multiple thousands, even five figures in reviews. And uh, we we did ask since neither of us are heavy or even at all Kindle users. Uh, if anyone knew and read those books. And thank you so much to everyone who wrote in, but we we got the answer, I think, which is a lot of these books that we mentioned, um, The Paper Magician is one people mentioned specifically that we mentioned on the show, were part of Kindle's first read program, where I think if you're signed up for Kindle Unlimited, that includes Amazon Prime. I'm a little unsure what exactly you're signed up for, but every month you get free access to some of the books in the program. And unsurprisingly, Kindle's own books are not only in the program, but primarily what the program is, since we've had a lot of buy-in from other publishers. So a lot of these books are getting a lot of free readers pushed by Amazon itself through Kindle stuff. And then, you know, that's, those people, of course, are more likely to read and review and blah, blah, blah. So I think we solved the mystery. Um, so thank you to all you Marples and Holmeses out there for helping us solve that particular read. Super interesting um, stuff. All you Marples and Holmeses. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you got to get both. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Moving from uh, Amazon over to Barnes & Noble, because, man, I am on my Segway game yeah, this you are. morning. Uh, Nook is offering what they call trade-in and trade-up. From May 17th to June 13th, you can get between $25 and $200 credit, depending on your uh, particular device and what condition it's in, uh, toward the purchase of a Samsung Galaxy Tab 4 Nook. Uh, we've talked several times about how Barnes & Noble uh, is no longer producing the Nooks themselves, but they partnered up with Samsung. And uh, so now you get a Samsung tablet that comes preloaded with the Nook 
stuff. They want you to turn in uh, old nooks, iPads, Kindles, and other Nexus tablets at any Barnes & Noble store. So if you've got the OG Nook first edition, yeah. you can get up to $50. Uh, and if you have got an iPad 4 or an Air or uh, the iPad minis, a couple of those, you can get up to $200. There's a grid here on the link that we'll um, put in for you. But if you uh, you know are in the market for a new uh, e-reader or a tablet, this might be the time to yeah. trade in the old one and, and see. Um, yeah, they should have bought an ad for this because this is something people are – but anyway, this is not an ad. Right. Just for the this right, is not an right. ad. This is just an interesting yeah. thing that's that's happening right now. Um, one of our contributors, I believe it was Jess Pride, wrote a piece last week about what's the best e-reader for you know diehard uh, book people. And her conclusion basically was don't get an e-reader, get a tablet that you can mm-hmm. put a bunch of different uh, apps on. And so the Samsung Galaxy is an option there. Of course, it comes preloaded with the Nook one, but you can download it any other. Yeah. Well, Android. that's not true. Well, you can't get the iTunes store right, right, on, right. Uh, you on can the... get Google and Kindle mm-hmm. and Kobo. Yep. And, you know, if you want 15 uh, publisher specific reading apps, you can, you can yeah, load and, yourself and you up. could download Scribd, which we'll talk about later yes, that's right. in the episode. So uh, trade in, trade up, get a new that's device. A, I mean, especially if you got it's an clever. ancient nook. And you get 50 bucks for it, that's a good deal. Yeah. I would not suggest turning in your iPad Mini 3 or your iPad Air 2 for 200 bucks. Right, no. You could sell those other ones and get uh, get good ones. Or if you have an old Kindle, like any old Kindle, I guess, is at least worth 25 bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a couple, I think, I that were from uh, the early, early days that no longer worked. I could have, well, see, you get 25 bucks, but then you got to spend 300 bucks on a Well, tablet. and conditions but, apply. So if it no longer works, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Read the fine print. But um, it's summertime, and people are starting to travel. Smart timing on Barnes & Noble's part. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, you're, if you've been in the market, probably this is the best deal for anyone who's been in the market for a tablet and want to do e-reading. And they've got an old device sitting around they're not using. Like, just this is free free credit. Um, and this is supposed to be a good device. I don't know much about it, but I've heard good things about this Samsung Galaxy that they're uh, they're uh, promoting here. So that's that's interesting. I like yeah, that. Yeah, interesting. You know, clever. All right, we got. There's a do lot. It. We don't have a huge story this week, but we got a lot of interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. So before we get into this, let's talk about the novice, our first sponsor this week, the novice by uh, Taran Matharu. So I, we've been talking about the backstory first, and then the plot. So I'm going to go the other way this time. Uh, they've they've sponsored a couple spots here on Reading Lives. Interesting story. So here's the story uh, that the, what the book is about. The novice. It's the first in a series um, called the Summoner series, and. This young guy, Fletcher, is working as a blacksmith's apprentice when he discovers he has this really rare ability to summon demons from another world. I guess maybe summoning demons from this world is more common. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> demons from another world. It sounds rare, even in this sort of fantasy world. So he then beca- he gets, you know, things happen. He gets chased from his village for something he didn't do. And then he has to take his demon, whose name is Ignatius, which is Ignatius. an adorably formal name for a it's demon. It's so great. Um, and they run off to this academy for the for the gifted um, that have this art of summoning these demons. So then he, he's got to go and endure lessons and, you know, sort of trials so he can serve as a battle mage in this larger war um, from the empire against these sort of savage orcs. So kind of a Lord of the Rings empire versus the orcs things going on there, both like much more fantasy element or sort of fantastical fantasy elements. Mm-hmm. Um, there's There's rivalries, some friendships get infected, and eventually... He's got to decide where his loyalties lie with only his sort of trusted pet demon 
um, Fletcher by his side. Do and you think he, maybe he calls Ignatius Iggy? Iggy for fun? Um, or Nat? I don't know. It could go either way. You have to read to find out. So that's this. I mean, compelling, high, high fantasy, magical storytelling going on. And then the backstory here is also interesting about the novice. So um, originally he started posting segments of the novice on Wattpad, which is this giant, enormous online writing website where you know writers can publish a material and find a bunch of readers interested in reading. Um, you know, independent, not published elsewhere writing. And in less than six months, it got over 3 million reads, which is a huge, I mean, that's so a many. huge number. Um, and and so then basically it be, it's become a traditionally published book. And The Novice is the first of these three books in the Sumner series. The first, the whole first edition, or I guess the first installment, which is The Novice, has not been published on Wattpad before. So this this new edition is the first complete story, uh, installment, I guess, mm-hmm. of the Sumner series. And now over, since fall 2014, another up to 6.2 million reads of the novice. Um, That's even these ex- I don't know if it's extracts or just sort of up to a point in the story. I don't really know exactly what's been published and what haven't, but the complete deal has not appeared and now it's going to appear. So if you're into fantasy, um, this one has a lot of what we call social proof behind it in the influence game. Other people saying they like it and been interested in it. 6.2, 6.2 million reads. So that's The Novice by Taran Matharu. Um, out now. Go check it out. Thanks so much for them sponsoring this show and a couple episodes and reading lives. It's, that's great. It's a good story, and uh, I like to hear stuff. That, that's, that's what we call a new publishing story. Right, it I is, mean that's what's yeah. very interesting about that uh, mm-hmm. to me. And um, the imprint it's coming out from is Fywell and Friends, which is a Macmillan Kids imprint. Macmillan does all these interesting things. Yeah, they, they also um, they also run Swoon Reads, which is sponsoring the All the Books podcast right now. And um, which, if you haven't listened yet, is the new half hour weekly show that I'm hosting with Liberty Hardy about the best new releases. Um, but Swoon Reads is crowdsourced uh, romance, young adult romance, reading and writing. Um, yeah. So you can read a bunch of stuff and provide feedback, and then they publish the ones that become most popular. Um, they're really paying attention over there to what the internet is doing for writing. Uh, also, we should mention all the books is doing great. The stuff the, we're up to two ep- two full episodes now. The teaser and two full episodes are up now. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go to well, you can just search for all the books in the iTunes store, or go to let's see Bookriot. what's the URL bookriot.com slash all the books all the books. Um, I, I, it was featured in iTunes featured in new and new, noteworthy last week. So that was really cool um, to see you guys up there and doing that. Yeah, it's, it's a been good really show. exciting. By the time this show comes out, we'll be about ready to drop episode three. All right. So let's go from an untraditional publishing story in the novice to a huge. <laughs> only what traditional publishing can do mm-hmm. um, is sign. Let's see. What imp- is it? Random House or is it an imprint of Random well, House? Well, it is. Uh, uh, an unnamed division of, oh, okay. of Random House so far. Um, has signed, has, has bought the rights yes. to Mindy Kaling and Bijak Novak's book about their romance or whatever it is. Yeah. For, so they, we'll, get, we'll come back to that. Okay. The big number is seven and a half million bucks. Oh boy. Which is the biggest deal I've heard of since I think we've been doing this show. I think. I think you're right. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure there have been Lena, other book deals. That was three million. Lena right? Dunham was three million. I think Aziz Ansari, whose book is coming out later this year, his was about three million. Yeah, um, Malala Malala's book was three million. Mm-hmm. Now Hillary Clinton got mm-hmm. more, I believe. Do we know how much that for, was though? No. Hard choices. For hard choices. Boy, that I book say hasn't it was earned around out. Ten. That book hasn't earned out. 
Mm-mm. It didn't sell that well. Anyway, that's a different. Uh, so tell me what this is. So it's it says about the romance, but from what I've read, that's not exactly. It's, yeah, it's not it's, as more complicated than that. So um, Mindy Kaling and B.J. Novak met while filming The Office uh, in the earlier. 2000s. And their characters on the show had this hilarious on again, off again romance. And apparently they have also had a real life on again, off again romance and are also best friends. Like if you follow either of them or both of them on social media, they talk to and about each other a lot. She talks about him in her book, um, Is Everybody Hanging Out Without Me? And you know, you get that there's like they really care for each other. There's a great rapport. They have this funny best friend, maybe when Harry met Sally mm-hmm. kind of thing going on. And so this book that they're going to do together is ostensibly about their complicated courtship, which coincided with the roles that they were playing on The Office together. Um, they're going to announce the book's title at BookCon um, next week at the Javits Center, at the, which is BookCon is the two-day event for readers that follows Book Expo America. Um, and up until now, this m- event was being billed as a chat about Mindy Kaling's new book of essays coming out soon called Why Not Me? Uh, so now there's more to it. Uh, apparently... All we really know is that this book for that they are paying seven and a half million dollars for is going to be put out by some random house imprint. Mm-hmm. Um, Crown put out Kaling's first essay collection and is putting out the second one again. And Knopf put out B.J. Novak's collection of like short story vignette kind of humor essay. Which things. sold that book sold. It did sell. And Kaling's um, book sold and mm-hmm. Novak's picture or uh, kids book sold. So this is a good like these are good <clears throat> authors to make they a give high dollar imprint. bet on because mm-hmm. we, we anyway we've been looking at their <laughs> imprints recently just like you know johnny depp yeah. has an imprint anthony mm-hmm. bourdain chelsea handler but like kaling and novak like they moved some units boy mm-hmm. um seven f it's know, a lot of money to sell? Yeah, oh, and a, apparently um they've been pretty quiet about the fact that there was a romantic relationship yeah until, i didn't know that did you until just now uh no, it had just been hinted at, I think. Mm. But neither of them had ever talked about this it. This is going to be made into a movie. You know this oh, is. yes. It's, um, you said it already. You already made the one Harry Met Sally. I mean, it's true. On. That's true. Uh, yeah, so they have a, a quote. Novak told People Magazine about their relationship and said that uh, Mindy Kaling is a really complicated person and a really complicated friendship, but I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Uh, So, I mean, this is interesting. I am just personally amazed by people who can be friends with their exes after the fact. (laughs) So if you can still not only like the person, but be good enough friends with them to write a book about your relationship and your friendship, like I will read this. I want Mm. to know how it works. Seven and a half million bucks. Wow. Oh, you know, though, if you were going to tell me, if you gave me a, a multiple choice list of like book pitches to spend seven and a half million dollars on, I might choose this one. Mm-hmm. You know, based on <laughs> they're both book people, celebrities, uh-huh. they're smart. The books themselves are good. Like, yeah, their books were really they're good. They're interesting this stuff. Was, yeah. And they like, it's maybe worth saying they wrote their books themselves. Right. Like this was not well, uh, that's not celebrities. Always the case. Right. It wasn't celebrities getting a lot of money for ghostwritten books. Uh, you can, especially BJ Novak's, you can feel that voice that we know from his writing on The Office and his stories. And Mindy Kaling is just so authentic that it comes through in in her essay collection as well. Like This is 
this is smart. Like this is smart money. A lot of times when these big book deals come out, especially if it's like $6 million on a 900 page debut novel or something, Mm. I'm super skeptical of, is that going to earn out and what is the publisher thinking? But this just makes a lot of sense. And these, yeah, they're, you know, they're literary bookish people. Right. Trust them. Oh, maybe there'll be a chapter about their favorite books. Oh, come on. I mean, they're both, they're both, they're both very serious book people. I need it Um, to be true or something that like, while they were courting, BJ Novak would read out loud to Mindy Kaling. Oh, now you're just doing headcanon. Okay. All right. Let's move on. All right. I think we've exhausted that story. Uh, though I would like to read that too, I have to admit. Um, so let's move on to another story. So Goodreads this week put out, um, uh, I guess probably inspired, was it last fall that someone over at somewhere, I can't remember where, I think it was Mashable maybe, maybe. did a best book set in each state sort of mm-hmm. map yeah. where they sort of looked at each state and say, what's the best book that was set there? Um, interesting. We talked about it on the show, we linked to it here. Goodreads mm-hmm. has, uh, is sitting on just a wealth of super interesting data. And so what they did is they did a, a U.S. map of the most popular book in mm-hmm. each state using Goodreads data. Um, so let's see. I don't know how to handle this exactly. Um, let's see. The highest rated in the closest tier of votes. So you had to get over – so to to – to qualify for the best, you had to have over 50,000 ratings. Some of this is to get rid of the small numbers effect. Mm-hmm. Like if you only have five ratings for a book and all gets five stars, well, it's really hard to call that the most popular book because no one's read it. So this is trying to balance volume of readership plus rating. Um, some some states didn't get to quite that threshold, so it, they went one threshold down. Because you would imagine like say, uh, I don't know. I'm looking here, like, um, it doesn't look like there's been a great book or not, you know, a real, not a great book, but a real popular book set in, uh, hmm, what am I looking at here? Well, like From- Alaska is the snow child by Eowyn Ivy. Uh-huh. Like that's not a book that most people know. Like it's, right, you know, right. that's a book that came out a couple of years ago. A lot of people liked it, but it's not on the same order of Lonesome Dove, which is on here, or Brave New World or Wizard mm-hmm. of Oz. You see what I'm getting there? Yes. I so do. that's, those are the caveats here. Um, so the link is in the show notes. I, how do you want to talk about this all? What's what's interesting to you about this map now that you're looking at it? I just you dropped know, this in the show notes before. It's too. a really interesting mix of sort of classics mm. and contemporary titles, like the Snow Child that you mentioned for Alaska. That's only a few years old. Uh, the Art of Racing in the Rain is on here. Yeah. Um, but like Lonesome Dove is the Texas one, right? Uh, the stand must take place in multiple states because I see it on this map three yeah, times. Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, and we've got Station Eleven shows up in two places. The Fault in Our Stars is the Indiana pick. So super recent, very big book. That's got to be the most recent um, book. But Native Son is the Illinois yeah. pick. It's set in Chicago, and that's you know several decades old. Gone Girl is Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so also very recent. Let's see. They got have the leaves of, of grass for DC. Yeah. What is that? I don't know. I'm going to have to write a letter to someone. Pointing? And they've I got Beloved. Really Wait, it, which Beloved is in one of the. Where's Beloved? It's on the right hand side pointing to one of the little tiny mid Atlantic somethings, but Beloved. Delaware? What? Okay, now I'm confused. Um, hmm. Prince of Tides, South Carolina. A Walk to Remember is North Carolina. 
We've got Some the of these I haven't heard of. Strange Angels from South Dakota. I haven't heard of that book. Yeah. Um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, of course, for Yeah. Is If I Stay, Nevada. is that that Gail Foreman book? Yes, it That's is. That's Oregon. Uh, American Gods shows up in two states. What's the oldest book? I guess Leaves of Grass, 1855. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like that you just know that. Mm. The women's my boy. <laughs> Uncle Walt. Hey, from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basilie the, Frankweiler. There it is, is right there. It's not Funkenweiler, just so you know. Just in case. Um, let's see. Yeah, to Kill a Mockingbird, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, the Help for Mississippi. Uh, the Green Mile, Louisiana. Oh, Color Brave Purple. New World uh, oh, for interesting. Uh, New Mexico. Yeah, I never think about that. And The Glass Castle for Arizona. Mm -hmm. American Gods for both Minnesota and Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Because it does, it, you know, the crosses the border up there. Roundhouse for North Dakota, the air yeah. direct. That's a Attachments great by Rainbow uh, Rowell is yeah. Iowa. 112263 for Maine. Huh. So Stephen King, I guess that's interesting. Stephen King has 112263 and then like three states for the stand. No, four mm -hmm. states. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. You know, it's interesting that New England, like the Scarlet Letter, it's like Shutter Island for uh, mm -hmm. for uh, Massachusetts. Massachusetts and New York is the Godfather. Interestingly, I thought it would be Gatsby there. Oh yeah, hmm. the Plain Truth for Pennsylvania. That doesn't, or just Plain Truth. I don't know what that book is. I don't either. Anyway, um, this is good radio talking about a map you can't see. <laughs> um, Sorry, but anyway, oh, Shiloh for West Virginia. Yeah, that's good. That's interesting. Oh, a walk to remember. So Sparks did take North Carolina. You knew yeah, you had enough he chips did. on the board. Oh, there. and Bet Me by Jennifer Crusey is the Ohio pick. Oh, I don't um, know that book. That's a it's that's the first romance novel that I read. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, Sarah Wendell, who runs Smart Bitches Trashy Books, which is like the premier romance uh, thing when I was wanting to read romance years ago, recommended that to me. Jennifer Crusey is a great contemporary romance writer, and it's it's a fun book. It will change the way you see Krispy Kreme donuts. Oh, dear. <laughs> Forever. Oh, boy. Okay. That's all I'm going to say. Well, let's keep it PG and move along. Um, <laughs> so you can see that in the link there. And uh, I, thought it was, I thought it was, I mean, I don't know what to say about that other than it's kind of an interesting way of seeing... Um, you know, the geographical diversity of literature in the U.S. Mm -hmm. especially. Like, it's pretty well spread out. Like, there's good titles all across um, the way there. Oh, no, not the, uh, yeah. Speaking of so, North Carolina. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Boy. This is the downer story yeah, of let's, the week. You um, take this one. I can't. So uh, a 25-year-old third-grade teacher in Elf, Elfland, not Elfland, that would be totally different, uh, in Elfland, North Carolina, named Omar Curry, decided to teach a book to his students uh, by Linda DeHaan and Stern Neeland called King and King, um, because a boy in his class who he says acts a little bit feminine was being called a girl and the word gay was being used in a derogatory way. Um, so we've got third graders making fun of one of their classmates mm. for the way that he appears and behaves. And Omar Curry wanted to do something about this. So he read King and King to his students, which addresses um, bigotry and addresses uh, the existence of gay people. It's about a crown prince who never cared much for princesses. Uh, and it was written in uh, written in Dutch and originally published in the Netherlands, but it's been out in the U.S. for, for quite a while now. Um, so he read this to his students and he noticed that it did seem to make the student who was being this is bullying, making fun of uh, making fun of someone for their appearance. The student who was being bullied, he noticed that it made him it did make him seem to feel better. But um, parents from the school uh, 
are upset that this book was read to their students and so or to, to their children in class. And so they complained. And now the principal of the school is requiring teachers to send home lists of all of the books that they plan to read in class so that parents can approve them before their students, before their kids go to school. Um. <laughs> I don't know how to talk about this. I mean, I, I, we've done a lot of these. It's, and this one is making me madder than normal. Yeah, and this I, is... Uh, so one of the grandparents who believes that the book is inappropriate for young students, there's a quote from her uh, in this piece from the LA Times. She says, I've been called a racist. I've been called a bigot. And I am none of those things. There no, is you're nothing... a homophobe. Yeah, yeah, so you're, this you're, you're, you haven't got to the well, right word yet. Yeah, this is nothing more than bringing homosexuality into a school where it does not belong. And that's the thing that I, I am on just, you know, spitfire mad about this. And I was talking to Amanda about it this morning. Um this is not bringing homosexuality into anywhere. Yeah, it's there. Gay, right. It's gay there. Gay people, kids are there. Gay kids are there. Gay people are part of the world that we live in. This little boy in Omar Curry's third grade class may or may not be gay. But no. all we know is that he looks and behaves in a way that other students made fun of. And that your job as a teacher is to create a safe environment for all of your students. It's also to prepare students for life in the real world. And this real world includes people who are gay. It includes people who may not look or behave the same way that you do or in a way that makes you comfortable. And it's not their job to make you comfortable. And when Omar Curry picked up a book with the intention of making one student feel better and helping other students get their heads around how to behave, he was doing his job as a teacher. The, all this business about with promote this book promotes the homosexual agenda or the gay agenda or you're teaching our students that homosexuality is okay there's no value judgment here and you can uh, there's a person on our facebook page this morning arguing about this being morality mm -hmm. uh, i think well I, and here's, I, I, the, here's the other thing so the use of the book was upheld in f land efl hand very difficult mm -hmm. to yeah. say um more like effed up land but anyway it, the the Curry who teaches it says he's not going to do it again, and he's considering resigning because it's been such a hassle. So this is also how de facto censorship happens in schools. Mm -hmm. Like maybe technically you're allowed to, but you've got to jump through all these hoops. You've got to take a bunch of grief. Like you know, well, the silencing can happen to, yeah. in ways that are that are more than just someone signing on a dotted line saying you're fired or get the heck out of mm -hmm. here. Or you can't read this. Like you, you, this kind of social pressure matters. We're like, so we've lost a teacher now who, yeah. or we might lose a teacher who is doing his job and trying to create an environment where his students feel safe and where bullying behavior is not tolerated. And, you know, as a parent, sure, it's your prerogative to teach your kids whatever you want about human behavior and about your values. And you don't have to approve uh, of gay people, mm -hmm. um, but you do have to treat other humans with compassion and kindness and humanity. And if your disapproval of another person's behavior is a, is an excuse to teach your child um, that bullying them or calling them names is okay, then that's a take a look in the mirror moment. Because these are third graders. Mm. And this book is clearly not the thing that taught these kids about the existence of gay people. They learned about this from someone else 
and they walked into their third grade classroom and called this little boy names that they heard from someone else. And I think that's what really fires me up about this in particular is the parents complaining about this book and this teacher as if the teacher is introducing the notion that right. gay people exist in the world. Well, you know, when cl- sexual orientation is a protected class in housing and employment, and there's a reason for that. I mean, it's 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 illegal to be homosexual. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not evil. It's not like some. It's not you know some like weird <laughs> fringe. I don't know existence out there. It's like part of American culture and part of human culture. And this is like this is I guess one thing that's interesting is this is like the last battleground, right? Mm-hmm. For like true homophobes, because we still have this weird thing about kids. Yeah, and right? it's like pr- protect the children from protect them from what from yeah, right the virus of homosexuality. I guess y- like right? y- I guess you don't man. Yeah, you I don't, don't have to teach your kids that anything is okay. I have a problem with it if you're teaching your kids that gay people are bad or wrong, but that's your prerogative. You sure as I'm just gonna you sure as shit don't get to teach your kids that their disapproval of someone's life or choices is validation for being cruel. Mm -hmm. You just don't. And then you don't get to take that into classrooms. Yeah. I mean, it's just super disappointing. Um, Progressive area without parental consent, but in F land, we need time. No. No. I mean, that's the teacher. That's what the teacher said. Yeah, that's what the oh the school officials said that. Okay, mm-hmm. I heard. <clears throat> no, it doesn't. No, that's we not need how it time. works. We've heard that before. This city just isn't quite ready. Right. You know, I think we heard that in uh, Topeka and, versus Brown versus mm-hmm. Board of Education. Yeah, in we're just not ready to you know desegregate. We're going to take a little more time. Yeah, that's it's super frustrating because it, it's also. I mean, the other part that makes it so. I don't know infuriating is that the teacher was doing one of those things with books we hope books do even mm-hmm. if you take homosexuality as right is make you feel like you're part of the world right? right that those of us who cared about books from a young age it made us feel more connected to a world and maybe a way we didn't feel sort of organically in the lives we lived um and he saw reading in literature and stories as a way to include someone that was being excluded and that was policed Um, And it speaks to, you know, I guess it also speaks to the implicit power, even the homophobes here understand books to have. Right. Right. That reading stories about ideas are normalizing. And maybe they're right in terms of their own logic to be worried about the book because it's doing something they don't want to do. And so, I mean, that's the other part of it. What makes it so infuriating is like, this is what we should be doing with books. You know, this, this is going to help this kid's these kids' lives be better and gay kids' lives be better and black kids' lives be better and anyone mm-hmm. who's been marginalized um, and all the ways that American does marginalization better than almost every other country in the world. Some of this have is stories that say you are seen and heard and your experiences are not only normal but affirmed. Yeah, this is what We Need Diverse Books has been all about. Well, but that's the um, problem. Diverse books can't solve this because you can make right. all the diverse books you want, but if it doesn't get into libraries or schools, like what does it matter? I mean, I guess parents can get it, but like this is the final battleground, I think. Because um, even if you have the books, if they aren't allowed in schools mm-hmm. and libraries, then then you're only, you're only part of the way there. 
You know, I'm still reading this. I'm looking at this piece again. And there was a forum for the parents in Ethland that they brought extra sheriff's deputies to for security. I mean, the people are really scared of gay people. I mean, it's really crazy. Like, what is the... This is so far outside the way that I think that I just can't get my head around. What is the thing that these parents are so afraid of? That their kids... Their kids are going to be gay, I guess. I guess so. Yeah. Um, Because this teacher read a book that normalized a character being gay and that made this one student feel better and that had the potential to make the other students at least consider someone's experience that was different from their own and treat that person with humanity. And that's, I guess that's the problem. Maybe it's, maybe it's, is it like that? I mean, that's what homophobia ultimately is, is the belief that gay people are less than human. It's a wrong, it's a sin. Right. right, It's wrong. It's a sin. They don't deserve to be treated the way that everybody else does. I wonder, I wonder if it is really that their kids are going to be gay or, or and maybe, you know, I'm sure there are people who have thought about this and studied this much more than I have. But the other possibility or sort of um, parallel possibility is that normalization of homosexuality and gay people's experiences undermines their worldview, which is, mm-hmm. you know, I'm guessing in rural North Carolina, <clears throat> right wing Christian. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the underpinnings of how they understand their identity, like family values and blah, blah, blah. And that uh, gay people are somehow abnormal and that homosexuality is a sin is a, is, you know, is a bedrock part of how they self-identify. Um, and normalizing that maybe calls in the rest of it, the, the house of mm-hmm. cards into question. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Maybe because maybe their kid being gay is something they could get around. But having your worldview crumble is much harder for people to get around in general, right? Because you can do right. like exceptionalist thinking, well... You know, it's just the way he was born. It's not his fault. You know, he can still be a good Christian, but like the world being different than you understand it to be. Now, that's that's much more difficult to uh, to handle. But that's mm. that's just supposition on my, on my part. I just, <clears throat> you know, I'm so tired of having to talk about yeah. these stories and of parents wanting to bring personal values into classrooms where teachers are trying to do their job. Um, this this is disruptive to the process of education too. Mm. Teachers having to pick out every book that they might want to read and send it home, and then and then what? Listen to every potential concern any parent could have about any of the books that mm-hmm. are selected and address those. Like this is just what are you thinking when you create this policy? Other than let's shut these parents who are upset up right now. I, I don't want to deal with mm. the trouble because in a, like this is not a long term sustainable way to run your classrooms. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Tough. Um, Man, let's it go. doesn't help anybody. Let's talk about let's something. Let's do fun. more gay subtext. Frodo and Sam. <laughs> um, <laughs> Jeff, I just love you sometimes. <laughs> uh, so this is really cool. Someone on Imager, uh, the the popular photo sharing website, IMGUR. I say it's in my head, Imager, but I don't That's know how I other people say. That's what I say too, say. but who knows? Um, Matt's, Matt's a wizard is the username. And indeed he is. Indeed, a wizard with Google Maps at least. So what he did is he wanted to know how far did Sam and Frodo actually walk um, from Hobbiton to Mount Doom. So what he did is he took maps that were included in the, the Lord of the Rings books, um, but also then, I guess, check that against the descriptions of how long it took them to go places, how many days mm-hmm. they walked, things like that, and mapped it out. 
and uh, basically, you know, figured out that it would take the the long story short is L.A. to Austin, Texas is the full route. Yep. That which is crazy. Um, yes. So if you're in <laughs> England, so he's he started he started using uh, UK maps. So London to uh, Serbia. 1,350 miles or 440 hours of walking. That is so many hours of walking. That's a long... I never really I never really thought about this. That's like three weeks. Yeah, I mean, you were supposed to know it's a long time because it's like almost a year to the day, mm-hmm. I think, they come back. Right, right. Um, wow, L.A. to Austin and those hairy feet. That's, I mean, think of <laughs> the impediments. But they're big. They're big. Yeah, which feet. makes it harder with short legs, I would think. I mean, your balance is all off. you got those short little legs. Like, that's a lot of steps <laughs> to get there. It is. I took my basset hound hiking last week, and that is a lot that's of steps. That's a lot of steps. I mean, I guess some of it, they were in boats. I don't know how long exactly they were in boats. Not too long. Um, but they, they ride in those barrels yeah. for a while. Well, no, no, that's the Hobbit. Oh, no, that's, that's the oh, Hobbit. Man, wrong, no, wrong, water, wrong water situation. Yeah, they would go from Lothlorien to somewhere else in boats, but I don't think it was that long. Um, but anyway, good job, Internet. Good job, yeah, Matt's this, a wizard. This is fully why we have the Internet, <laughs> so that some beautiful nerd can look at the maps in the front of the Lord of the Rings and actually decide to figure out how long the walk is. I feel like this would make Tolkien happy. I think too. so too. I think, I think it would make Tolkien happy to, to see that. Um, there tell us about some, oh, go ahead. No, I, I want to talk about how there should be some sort of like Frodo Sam fundraiser walk where you oh. do 440 miles. And you've got to wear a prosthetic hours feet. Of walking. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And ears. And you walk from LA to Austin. The Frodo and Sam, uh, Thirteen hundred fifty miles. How many pairs of plastic feet would you go through walking thirteen hundred and fifty miles? More than more than you could probably find, <laughs> I would think. All right, tell us about our next sponsor. All right, another sponsor this week is the Grace Keepers by Kirsty Logan. This one is so intriguing. It's being billed for readers of the Night Circus and Station Eleven. Oh, which yeah, really I'm interesting. In. Con- I'm interested yeah, yeah. suddenly. I was. I am sold right there. Um, and those are d- really different from each other books. So I was curious when I started reading about this one, how it would tie together to like, I am a reader of the Night Circus and Station Eleven. And so are you. But what do the two have to do with each other? Um, this is a debut novel. It's set in a world covered by water. Um, one of the main characters, Kalanish, is a grace keeper. Um, which means that it's her job to administer shoreside burials. She lays the dead to their final resting place, which is deep in the depths of the ocean. And she lives alone on an island to which she exiled herself, um, where she just tends these watery graves as penance for a mistake she made a long time ago that continues to haunt her. Uh, Meanwhile, the other main character, whose name is North, and here comes the Night Circus part, uh, works as a circus performer with the Excalibur, which is a floating troupe of acrobats. Now, just tell me that you don't want to see this movie. Uh, acrobats, clowns, dancers, and trainers, and they sail from one archipelago to the next, entertaining people in exchange for sustenance, which kind of ties to Station Eleven and the troop of people that travel around 
in it, like performing Shakespeare yeah. after the world ends. Um, so this world that's covered in water that they live in is divided between those who inhabit the mainland who are called landlockers and those who float on the sea that are called damplings. And loneliness is just part of the deal for both of these main characters, North and Kalanish, until there's a sudden storm offshore that brings change to both of their lives and offers them a new way of understanding the world that they live in and the consequences of their past, which ultimately ends up restoring their hope in the future. It's inspired by Scottish myths and fairy tales. The cover is very, uh, it's very like light and watery and ethereal looking. It, it looks like a Scottish fairy tale cover would look to me. It's beautiful. Um, and it's also being compared to Margaret Atwood. So mm. I'm like, I'm so far in this to win it. Nice. Uh, that's The Grace Keepers by Kirsty Logan. If it sounds good to you, I don't know how it couldn't. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes and you can look for it whenever books are sold. Thanks to them for sponsoring. Um, Where you want to go now? You know, the beloved, so Folio Society, I don't know if um, a lot of people know about them, but they do these high-end premium special editions of not just classics, but books people love that, you know, they want on their shelves and might be interested in a, a more, I guess, artistic sort of edition. Um, mm -hmm. They've been doing this for a while and they just released a new one, which, you know, we have to talk about because it's beloved. Um, and it's really beautiful. I mean, it's it has got new illustrations and a new cover. Mm -hmm. um, they don't have dust jackets. They have that like sort of embossed, I get, you know, the embossed images and, mm -hmm. and art. Um and I was just looking at the the images that um, this is a, a story in Flavor Wire. Like, I want to see like an exhibition of these. Yes. Like, don't you see what, like, I wonder if the Flow Society has ever done that where they've like, you know, gotten an exhibition somewhere where they've got the original art for these editions. Because there's stuff of, uh, of Setha and with the ghost of Beloved, it's just mm -hmm. in the, the cover image is, is Beloved coming out of the water. If you had asked me like uh you know last week if i thought that an illustrated edition of beloved was a thing that could exist and work and that yeah. i would want i would have been like oh man how do you illustrate such a difficult book um these are so beautiful they're really really um amazing I don't, how much do these go for i haven't looked at this recently um let's see Sixty nine ninety five. So they they're, they 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 price them as like art books, right? Yeah, this is definitely a collector's edition kind of thing. This has an introduction by Russell Banks, and the piece on FlavorWire includes a few of the photo, a few photos of images, uh, illustrations from the book, and a short interview with the illustrator, whose mm -hmm. name is Joe Morse, and uh, FlavorWire asking him about the project and how, how he came to be involved in this and what you, how do you even set about illustrating Beloved? Oh, oh man. man. Have you seen, did you see the one of Paul D taking Seth's shirt off and seeing that the tree of scars on her back? No. That's in the flow. It's amazing. Mm. You know, that's, that's one of the more powerful, mm -hmm. I mean, in a, in a book chock full of powerful scenes, that's one of the tenderest, um, for sure. Their relationship is one of my favorites. Yeah, it's Since amazing. now we're just having Toni Morrison <laughs> time. Um, that line about God. having a woman who's a friend of your mind is one of my, and I just think it's one of the best. Oh, Tony. Yeah, it's it's a remarkable work. And you can see something, you go to foliosociety.com, you can browse a bunch of the ones they have there. Mm -hmm. But uh, um, of the ones I've seen, maybe it's because 
it's the degree of difficulty seems high. Yeah, this is this is not easy. And the movie, if you've ever seen it, is a rough watch. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. do a great job because there's a lot hard to do. But it doesn't. In hindsight, illustrations make a lot more sense. Uh, it does. Me. Yeah, the ghost of beloved stuff is so. Like, yeah. It makes so much sense in the text, but it's a really difficult thing to translate to film. Yeah. Um, this uh, artistic rendering of it, though. Is, it's just mm-hmm. really, really beautiful. Yeah, film um, doesn't tend to do ambiguity very well. And it, right. for the for a lot of the book, you're not sure if, like, the ghost is real or what's going on, um, where the illustrations kind of hold that, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit better than a movie can, which a movie kind of has to make a decision. Like, either someone is seeing something or they aren't. Like, it's very difficult yeah. to, to do ambiguity. So, uh, if, you're, if you have a Toni Morrison fan that you'll be shopping for yeah. for the holidays, go ahead and just bookmark. Right. That's a, a remarkable uh, bookmark. This a remarkable one. one. It's okay. really incredibly done. Uh, so just worth I guess we're just fanboying and girling out over that. That's not really a story. We just, we just this. If this is a thing that exists and we like yeah. it. <laughs> um, well, this is interesting. You must have found this because I didn't link to this next story. Oh, let's see. The Google search it? reviews, search results for uh, movies oh, and book yes, reviews. It is. And I got redirected. So there we oh. go. Um, so our, our pal Nate, who runs the digital reader, um, f- noticed that Google now is not all the time, but if you're searching for um, for reviews of things, Google is showing different results based on your search topic and for books and movie reviews just in search results. So if you search Uh for a book title plus the word review, Google will show you a window with reviews as the first result rather than just linking you to places that you can get the reviews. It'll start, it starts to actually show you some of the text. I think the other thing that's different too is you used to do this and the first five links would be Amazon. Right. And this is sort of noticing that you may Mm -hmm. not be looking just for Amazon user reviews, but you're looking for, you know, you might be looking for. So this one is War and Peace, and he got Goodreads 1 reviews, Mm -hmm. and The Guardian, and The New York Times, and And Amazon Amazon finally is like the fourth or fifth result. But yeah, this is an interesting change. I think Google is smart to do this, knowing that people who are looking for reviews are probably looking for, you know, reviews, Mm -hmm. um, not just the product page. Yeah. Yeah. That's just an interesting new thing. Or, and, and Nate says in this piece, he doesn't know how long this has been going on, but it's a thing that he noticed recently. And that, um, the search engine Roundtable, which is a tech reporting thing, uh, reported on it recently as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, a, a relatively new feature, for Google uh, and cool for book readers. Cause yeah, you're most likely not just wondering what people on Amazon thought about a book. If you're sitting down to Google, like reviews of station 11, uh, right. you probably are looking for, right. you know, critical reviews. I'm dropping Pretty another cool. one, random one in here. A surprise <laughs> for a link to it today. So the suburban New York home where F Scott Fitzgerald is believed to have written the great Gatsby is for sale. I linked to it this morning. Well, um, we need a new office. Yeah, we do. It's uh, it's seven bedrooms, six baths okay. and a great neck. Which is the stand-in for uh, West Egg. Um, or, or no, West Egg is the stand-in for Great Neck. The <laughs> reality is not subbing in for uh, literature as much as I might want that to be. 5,000-square-foot Mediterranean-style home built in 1918, which weird to think about those New York high-end suburbs is that they were like the McMansions of the oh, 20s. Yeah. Like they were new buildings, um, which is weird to think about now. But it, it wouldn't have been the size home – that Gatsby would have lived in because it was small for that. But like if you were one of the, the nameless party goers yeah. to Gatsby, this might've been your home. 
Uh, so yeah, he lived there. He and Zelda lived there from 1922 to 1924, um, and he was, you know, Long Island's Gold Coast. I'm guessing he was meeting people um, in the terrain. It's a beautiful home, actually. You know, it's, what's it listed for? Uh, Three point eight million dollars. Oh, you know. So, uh, you know. Anyway, I thought that was, you know, I'd never seen this before. Mm-hmm. Music room, several fireplaces. They only lived there for a couple years. I don't know enough about their history to know where they're bopping around to their marriage is so fabled also like you know just interesting to be able to picture now the place where they lived and where they were throwing their own and i wonder if he moved out there with the intention of writing the book out there like he wanted to be sort of uh in situ there or he got the idea while being there i don't know it's it's interesting to see but like it's it's what's weird. It struck me about it is like it looks like the home that F. Scott Fitzgerald would have lived in while writing the Great Gatsby. <laughs> like it's a huge house, but it's not you know a Vanderbilt or a Gatsby mm-hmm. kind of like giant sort of uh, you know this is this is the the middle of the Roaring Twenties on Long Island. Just think of all the gin that was drinking. I know. I wonder who's room. gonna buy it. Like <sighs> you hope someone that cares, but you never know. Yeah, you know, you hopes. I wonder if they're getting. I wonder if they're getting a premium for it because of this. You would think so. Like if like it was, I mean, if it was the one next door that's exactly the same, it. is it a yeah. million dollars cheaper? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. All right, so that you so, can take that. We'll put a link to the show notes. If you're there. in the market, <laughs> yeah. If you're in the market. Speaking of S. F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, if you uh, you'd say you wanted to catch up on the Great Gatsby this summer, is it who, Amanda reads Great Gatsby every year, I think. Yes, it is Amanda. You read The Movable Feast every summer or every no, year. No, 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 I'm kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm making fun of your Hemingway. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, whatever. But say you wanted to read it over and over again or haven't read Hemingway before or Fitzgerald before, you could go to Scrib.com. Uh, Scrib.com is the subscription book service that gives you unlimited access to a library of more than half a million ebooks and audiobooks. Uh, head over to Scrib.com slash bookwrite. You get started with a free month. That's 30 days of unlimited access to half a million ebooks, but there's more because they got audiobooks too. More than 30,000 audiobooks. Um, recently, we talked about it before in one of the previous ad spots, signed a big deal with PRH, Penguin Random House, to supply. I mean, these are new releases mm-hmm. that are happening there. We talked, I think last time Missoula was on script. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, our friend and coworker Clint is listening to Missoula right now. We actually had a long, there's a long um, Book Riot back channel uh, about Missoula by yeah, John Krakauer. I am the other still day. listening Still in to the middle it. of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can listen to more than 30,000 audiobooks. If you do your 30 days of unlimited reading and listening, that's free, and you want to keep going, it's just eight ninety nine a month. And there's more. You can get comics as well, comics of a whole bunch of different kinds, all the way from sort of current comics um, that are sort of more modern, like Lumberjanes, to back issues of Daredevil and the X-Men and Thor and Iron Man and the Avengers. And all this is a bunch of capes and a bunch of other uh, capes. That's that's lingo. That's comics nerds use for superhero comics, capes comics. Um, but also all a bunch of other kinds of comics are going as well. So we talked about before, but one thing subscriptions are especially good for is trial, right? Yep. You don't know you're going to like something, do 100 pages. Don't like, you know, if you're going to like an audiobook, do 45 minutes. Uh, don't like, you know, like a comic, read three issues of a run of a particular artist or a particular character. See if you like it. You can consume a bunch of them in a row and decide if that's something you want to commit to or try it out. Try new genres, uh, try new formats, try new authors, uh, try new mediums. Um, all the way, Scribd makes it easy to try and expand. I mean, that I think that's the thing I like most about this kind of service is that I think most of us know that there's great stuff out there we're missing on because we have all sorts of weird biases or holes in our knowledge or experience. 
Um, and it feels like the friction to, you know, get around, mm-hmm. you know, to, to overcome that obstacle can be hard. But with Scribd, it's easy to try something you've wanted to try or you didn't even know you want to try. Maybe you just want to be a more diverse reader, more yeah. inclusive reader. This yeah. is a good way to do it. Yeah, you can challenge yourself. I think we all have or have had some like, I'll read anything but genre, you know, like what there's some kind of book that you right. think just isn't for you. For me, for a really long time, that was romance. Um, and we we've, we've heard that from a lot of book riot readers as well. So let's say that you're open. Like if you've never read a romance, you just think that you'll read anything but right. romance. Um, Scribd would be a great way to try out some romances. My all time favorite Sarah McLean is on Scribd. Julia Quinn, who writes great romances, is there as well. You can give those a shot and see. Maybe you're a person who thinks you'll read anything. But thrillers, you could try out some good thrillers and find out it it might turn out you hate all of them, but at least then you'll know and it won't have cost you, you know, major book dollars to give it a shot. Um, Last week, we talked about how there's a new vinyl edition of Amy Poehler's memoir, Mm. Yes, Please, or some excerpts coming out on vinyl. You can listen to the whole thing on Scribd. Um, Amy talking about her life and work and creativity and motherhood and womanhood and friendships and just, you know, great stuff. I thought it was a really cool, fun audiobook, and there are great guests on it. Kathleen Turner shows up. It's awesome. Um, oh, and recently I read Hyperbole and a Half by Ali Brosh, um, which... Uh, is I read in print, uh, but is from the very popular webcomic. She does those like very simple sort of cartoony drawings that convey so much uh, energy about her life and experiences. It is hilarious. Uh, and you can read that if you're reading on a tablet that has, you know, a full color screen, you can read that on Scribd as well. Mm. Um, or, or if you trade in your old one to there get a go. new right. nook. And now we've come, come, come full circle. Full circle. <laughs> All right. Let's, so let's bring it back home to uh, something we always do. Let's tell us, let's do new books. All right. We got two uh, new books that I'm super excited to talk about this week. The first is Mislaid by Nell Zink. This is like maybe the weirdest book that I've read so far this year in the most delightful way. Uh, it's set in the early 70s. The main character is a, a woman who grew up kind of feeling like she was a boy. She was definitely convinced um, that she was going to grow up and be a man or that she was a lesbian or both. Um, she goes off to an all-girls, all-women's college in central Virginia in the mid-70s, and she falls for a renowned and reclusive poet who lives on campus who's gay. So they fall for each other. Uh, she accidentally gets pregnant. They end up married with two kids. Things do not go as planned. And 10 years later, she has had enough and she takes off with their daughter um, to a different town in central Virginia, which like this was super fun for me to read because I also live in central Virginia and can pick out, you know, I, I knew the places they were talking about, but sh- they're white and she gets the birth certificate of a little, uh, a, a black girl who has died recently and manages to change her daughter's identity. So she and her white daughter are living as black people who are passing basically in this Virginia town. Um, We see their life together. It's kind of a farce meets satire meets really sharp commentary on race and sexuality um, in America. And then we also see the poet 
husband and he's raising their son. And eventually the son and the daughter end up at UVA together and things kind of explode and go sideways from there. It's so weird and funny uh, and just very pointed uh, and very sharp. Uh, Nell Zink is so, is such a smart writer and this, there's a lot of buzz around this book for very good reason. Um, I think we're going to continue to hear a whole lot about it. I'm not sure that I've done it any justice, but it's totally great. (laughs) (laughs) I think think you've done it justice. It's totally great. Uh, The other pick this week is a young adult book called Three Day Summer by Sarvanaz Tosh. This is Boy Meets Girl at a concert and not just any concert, but like the most amazing concert that the world has ever seen. Uh, The boy is named Michael. He is unsure about pretty much everything in his life. Does he want to go to college? Does he want to enlist in the military? Maybe he should break up with his girlfriend. Um, But he's just living in the moment and he wants to just have a few days at this big music festival. Um, Cora lives in the town where the festival is being hosted and she's volunteering in the medical tent. She's a good girl. She's the kind of girl who volunteers in the medical tent while everybody else (laughs) (laughs) is partying at the music festival. But as happens with these things, there's something in the air mm. and uh, maybe literally and Cora finds herself wanting to push her boundaries. So they meet and sparks fly and all of the things that songs are written about happen for them over these three epic summer days. I am. Uh, I have not yet read this Swapna. Our colleague just finished it recently and told me she really, really loved it. Um, so I'm going to be picking that one up quite soon cool. and that is Three Day Summer by Sarvanas Tosh those Three are new books Three Day Summer Th- those are new books that's um, our show as always thanks so much for listening if you want to stick out stick around for Mad Men uh, nerdy commentary uh, listen through or fast forward through the, the exit music and we'll pick it up there for a few I don't know how long we're talking We'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll see. I'm going to go get some ice cubes. Yeah, we'll to do a bio. We're going to do glass. a bio break, and I'm going to put my fedora on and suddenly be concerned about uh, men's rights. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, no, no, Jeff. No, don't that, stick around. That's a joke. No. That's not what's going to happen. Um, but as always, thank you so much for listening. You can find show notes at bookwrite.com slash podcast. If you've got feedback for us about Mad Men or uh, uh, Hobbits um, or Kindles, or nooks or whatever else you might that might come into your brain um you can email us at uh, podcast at bookwrite.com you can follow me on twitter i'm at the jeff o'neill o-n-e-l she's at rebecca shinsky s-c-h-i-n-s-k-y thanks so much to the novice by taran matharu for sponsoring the show scribd and um the oh do you have to do the last one i'm gonna blank the grace on the name. keepers by kirsty logan the grace keepers by kirsty logan thank you guys so much for sponsoring the show and making this all possible we're gonna talk to you next time we're gonna have a little bit of a delayed podcast next week uh, rebecca and i and um, the full the full book riot and riot new media group and panels squad are going to be in New York for BEA. So we're going to be recording um, our next episode on Monday, a week from Monday. Oh, we should get Amanda on that one with us. Yeah, too. we should get Amanda on that one with us. She'll be tired and hungover, so we'll, let's, let's uh, torture her a little bit. Um, and we'll have a BEA wrap up show. And if there's other news to do, but it's going to be a little bit later. So those of you usually count on us for your Monday commute, have to be your Tuesday commute next week. I'm so sorry about that, but hopefully the show will make up for it. And we'll uh, talk to you all next week. Have a good one. Did you find yourself satisfied with the finale? Yes, very. Oh, very. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. I was very happy. Yeah. I was prepared for something much stranger.
Mm-hmm. I, and I think you were too. Yeah, the penultimate episode of the yeah. season. I don't know that I've ever said this is going to get weird out loud more times in a single hour of television viewing right. before. Like it just, it was... It was not the typical last season of a typical television no. show, which is not surprising uh, given Matthew Weiner and Mad Men. But I thought it was going to be so much weirder. Well, Michelle and I were talked about this too, and um, I'm going to bring up Michelle's name a lot because we've been processing and been fans of the show together, you know, this whole time. Um, we were both saying after the Penelope that could have been a finale. Mm-hmm. It really could have because you got you got foreshadowing of a lot of stuff we got in the finale, like Peggy. Um, Peggy and Stan hadn't got together, but she we get that sort of hero shot of her walking down the hallway. Man, that she every just bookish had a woman on the internet is now their Twitter profile. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But I understand I mean, understandably, it's like awesome. Like she's come to terms with her place. She feels confident. Um so we didn't get but we felt like she was kind of we saw her future trajectory a little bit there. Um uh, Pete and Trudy had had their couch reconciliation. Um, Betty had, you know, sort of made her choice and Sally had read the letter. Don, we also got a little half smile from Don at the end of that. Sitting there on that on bench. The, on bench. Which was a very nice thing for him. Um, we got Roger sort of saying that, you know, telling Don about Marie Calve. I guess that was the episode before. But anyway, his story was sort of wrapped up as well. But so I was prepared for it to be, I think I may have said to you that I was expecting to be 100% Don doing something weird. Yeah, I know you... Had thought you thought that we were done that we had seen the end. I thought we had Pete seen and Joan yeah. and Pete that the peripheral character that all the supporting characters had been wrapped up and that this would be one hundred percent done. Um, I wasn't convinced of that. I was ready for it because it yeah. did feel like that second to last episode could have been the ending or very well might have been the ending, the last that we would see for those characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would have been happy with that. I I really like ambiguity in. Yes. Uh, in literature and in TV. Um, I really liked Breaking Bad for those reasons as well. But I was, I would have been totally fine with just wondering where these characters were. Mm -hmm. Um, I had sort of this dream that the last shot of the last episode would be Don uh, pulling up or standing in front of the house he was raised in and Mm. having a real reckoning of, am I Dick Whitman or am I Don Draper? Um, I think we kind of, we got that in a different way. We did. Um, But it was, it was both more, it was more closed ended than I expected, but really we don't know where these characters go after these moments that we saw. Yeah. Michelle was just saying like, (laughs) We got more happy endings than I would have predicted. I mean, the the mm-hmm. finale makes makes the endings way happier than even the penultimate one does. I think because you get you get Peggy and Stan like a real integration of personal and private. Like I think that's what the finale was about. Like people integrating different pieces of their lives back together. Like Joan working out of business out of her home with her mom and with her mm-hmm. kids. So like we're and Pete integrating his professional life and his family life and Peggy and Stan integrating their romantic personal lives and their work lives. Like I thought, I mean, we can get, I mean, of course we're going to get to the Coke ad in a minute or several minutes, but that was also integrating the show back into the real world of advertising um, and the real experience of, of ads we've actually seen. And Don trying to integrate both Don and Don Draper and Dick Whitman and his professional self and personal self. So I, that's what felt satisfying to me is like all these pieces that people have been either fighting to keep separate or pushing to push together kind of got intertwined. You know, Betty, Betty got to, Betty got to be the mom, but also got taken care of. She also got to tell Don what to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And he took her seriously and like respected her wishes. 
it's to me, it's always been a show about identity. Yeah. And it, it started off as more of a workplace type show. Like I know we were talking offline recently about how the early, those early seasons are so heavily about what happens at the yeah. office for almost all of the characters except for Don. And in the later seasons, we get to see ev- pretty much everyone outside the office mm-hmm. and get to know their personal lives better. But this, to me, very much seemed like a who am I and what do I want uh, show and that the finale really brought that home. The last several episodes really brought that home that um, the moment that Don has, I can't remember which episode of this run it was, but where Don's like going around the office asking yes. everybody, what's the, like, what do you want next? Um, and we talked about that a lot uh, offline also. Yeah. Where, and, you know, like Ted just wants to land a pharmaceutical. pharmaceutical right. <laughs> and Peggy just wants fame. She wants an award, of, I think. is Yeah, kind of none of those are or, like none of those answers is satisfying for Don because he wants everybody to have some existential thing that they desire. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we started to see that more, the answers to those questions more in these last few episodes that Joan decides that she wants to work. Yes. And that's yeah. the thing that she wants more than love. Um, Peggy, most of us watching the show, I, I mean, I was perfectly content, I guess, with her exit in the penultimate episode, which was taking the buyout from McCann and sort of going off to, you know, to be a happy retiree with Bruce Greenwood. I can't remember the character's name, but uh, the Florida developer. Mm-hmm. That guy. A nice guy, respects her. Um, you know, he's a match for her sort of personality wise. Like, it seemed like a good fit, but she's like, she says to Peggy, I've been to the beach. Like, she just doesn't want that right then in mm-hmm. her particular time of life and is willing to it's it's interesting too because you think of you know when you do endings you think of beginnings i guess and joan's mo from the beginning is to get someone like bruce greenwood right at the beginning uh-huh. she's trying to like land a, a wealthy dude when i i read some i've read so many pieces about Mad Men this week i can't keep straight <laughs> <laughs> like, i haven't read was, that many i need to dive into some there was a point where like 85% of my tabs were mad men related <laughs> early tabs and thing pieces week. yeah yeah and one of them pointed out that uh, that Matthew Wiener's sort of his MO with writing these characters and his MO with writing in general is that people don't change mm. and so like I didn't expect there to be a Don Draper change of heart giant arc. Um, and, and like our colleague Clint started watching Mad Men a few years ago and asked me at one point, like, does he ever stop philandering and drinking? And does he ever become a better person? And I was like, no, he's never going to become a better person. Like, this is not a show about a guy becoming a better person. But Joan has a big mm. arc. She starts as kind of the piece that I read talks about how in the early seasons, Joan is like a defender of patriarchy. Oh, yeah. She, she tells you, she, Peggy to keep in line. And yeah, like, she, yeah works, things. Right. she works for these powerful men within this system. And she she has power within that system as well, but only so much of it. And she's locked out. Like there's real glass ceiling um, for Joan in the early seasons. But she is the enforcer of the system that these powerful men that she works for have created. And she wants everybody to stay in line and to respect the the literal keeper of keys. She, yes, she is. And we see her really like that becomes not enough Mm -hmm. for Joan. Um, She wants to become partner. She wants to be taken seriously. She deals with so much head on sexism and harassment, especially in this last season and just decides that she's going to go for it. I think, I think we really saw Joan, decide who she was. Um, We saw Peggy make a similar choice that Peggy wasn't just going to work. She was going to try. Peggy's going to try to have it all. Yeah. Um, 
And I have Interesting that, yeah. I mean, maybe a good, interesting that she turned Joan down, I thought. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. was not, I wasn't A, expecting Joan to go into business for herself, though I thought that was a nice move that Ken Cosgrove, like it makes a lot of sense. Um, that when she when she invites Peggy to lunch and she offers the deal, I was like, oh, she's going to take it. Yeah. And but she didn't want to do that. And Stan says this is not even what you do, right? right. To her, and she so she decides to gut it out with, I believe. And Michelle made this point too, or not too. She made this point to me. She said, you know, what's cool about that is Peggy has the confidence to believe she she can do it. She can get her mm-hmm. name on the door. She can rise to the ranks based on merit. In that situation, which is a hopeful thing, considering where we started the show in terms of feminism and yeah. sexuality. But also Peggy knows that she can because she's done it or yeah, most of it. it already. Right. She's done um, most already. She fought her way to the top of um, Sterling Cooper Draper Price. Yeah. Interesting, too, that both Joan and Peggy got their breaks through women's consumer products. Mm-hmm. Um, Peggy for the the famous episode of I Don't Want to Be Just a Color in a Box. I don't remember the name of that company. Um the lipstick, and then yeah. Joan got it through Landing Avon, right? Um, because she could speak their language, and you know that the rise of women as consumers had sort of a correlative effect in the show of bringing women, you know, more opportunities in the workplace, especially around advertising. Super, and you know, Joan too. She's such. I mean, her body. She's sexual. She's sexual and sexualized the whole time. Like she's mm-hmm. a, she's sort of female. Male desire incarnate, or heterosexual male desire incarnate in the show, and that she ends the show at home running a business is super interesting to me. Like that's where that that hypersexualized body ends up in a domestic space doing independent mm-hmm. professional work is super interesting. To me. Yeah, it's. I think Joan realizes in that in the moment with the fella whose name I can't recall. Yeah, either, Bruce Greenwood that, is the actor that plays. Yeah, her. that she probably isn't going to have it all. And so she's going to decide which things she wants yeah. to have more. And she she wants work and she wants her personal success and her identity. And I think that Joan can make that choice because uh, she's she's had to fight for personal respect so much. And yeah. uh, she has faced down well, that. She's got a core million dollars in the bank too. doesn't hurt. Right. We still have this problem with mm. um, pretty women in professional settings and the assumption that they can't be pretty and oh, smart. Oh, must have slept their way to the top. Right. Blah, blah. They must have slept their way to the top. Or if you are a sexual being. Which she also kind of, I mean, that was also part of her mm-hmm. story though. Yeah, like she's, with Jaguar account, she basically mm-hmm. prostitutes her else off to that one guy. Yeah, like, and she's, She's unapologetic about the yeah. fact that she has desires, and that's complicated by the decisions that she makes right. um, to use her sexuality in the business world as well. But and ultimately for the show, it wasn't her sleeping around. It was her competence right. that mm-hmm. was that paid off. It wasn't right. that she slept with the Jaguar guy. It's that she was savvy and landed the Avon account. Um, mm-hmm. ultimately as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, too. I thought she. It's, it's good. I loved it that she ended up making that choice. And I like to believe that down the line, you know, Holloway Harris is successful and Joan has that under wraps, you know, like that's on lockdown and Joan meets a guy who can hang with it. Cause Bob and I had a little bit of a, an argument about this fella and how he does respect her and he wants to be with her, but like, it's all, it, it is very much on this guy's terms. Like he's done working. And so he needs her to be done working. And when she said she wanted to work, she wants to do this thing. I wanted to see him be like, okay, I'll hang with that. And mm. like, I'll travel and you can come with me when you want to come with me, but we can do this thing where 
we were in different parts of our lives, but we can be together. And well, Bob was like, well, you know, he was always, he was straight up that he wanted to travel. He was done with work and, and that's fair. Um, I think but, he earned that a little bit more because Wiener gave us the, he didn't want to do the kids thing and she had withheld mm-hmm. that he had a kid. And he right. said, oh, uh, I thought I was done with that, but to be with you, I'll put up with it. Mm-hmm. Right. But this was like one bridge too far. Cause he even said like, I've done this. Yeah. It takes up all your time. It takes up all your energy. So I see what you're saying, but I, I kind of think, I don't know if Warner did it intentionally, but he had already conceded once to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did you, what did you think was going to happen when they did the Coke? I don't know. Like, it's weird that this, this, the episode began and end with Coke in very different ways. Right. But anyway, I, I don't know. I think that was a sign of like complete, I don't know what was going to happen. I think it was more of a sign of this was complete um, leisure. Like this was, you don't have to, we can just do Coke at 10 in the morning because we have nothing to do. And this could be your life, Joni. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting about, to me about him is like, in a way he seemed to me like, I don't know, I think of the men in the show and some of the women as sort of spectral or astral projections of Don's possible futures Mm -hmm. or possible Mm -hmm. lives. And that's one he definitely could be, right? He has enough money. He could bang around on the beach doing coke, drinking, sleeping or with beautiful women or getting into a committed relationship with one woman. Like what's weird, what's weird is that that thing he, when he's asking everyone what they want is he's actually, actually looking for something to want, I think, part, mm-hmm. right? Like he doesn't have an answer to that question either. Yeah. I think, I mean, the whole show has, I think, been in some ways about what, how empty Don is and the different things he tries to fill those right. holes in himself. Um, and so there are women and there's drinking and there's work and there's and- kids and there's kids, and then there's more women and more drinking. And there's being in charge. There's being the not in charge again. Right. There's power, and then yeah. there's mentoring. I think he really derives uh, genuine satisfaction from his relationship with Peggy mm. and from supporting yes. her and being progressive in the way that he is progressive about her and her role in the company. Uh, but none of that really does it for Don except work. Like, I, I'm happy with the way that this finale went in that we do see Don come back to who am I? And the answer to that question for Don is I'm a person. Oh, we'll have to talk about works. that. I mean, yeah. you know, I don't love, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of like, or I, what, what I am a huge fan of is like keeping multiple possibilities open. And one thing I like about the ending here is you can read it several different ways and not have to choose one. But yeah, that is, that is interesting. Cause like Don's always looking for, and, and it's, I guess Wiener said, and I think the show bears it out, that one of the sh- – one of the one, if the show is about anything, it's about whiteness and privilege, like especially for a good-looking, talented man who becomes filthy rich basically. Mm-hmm. And what is the end game there? Like it's it's actually a real open question in sort of American society. Like if you get – if you're Zuckerberg or Bill Gates or whoever, right, who, who's – and Don doesn't even have wealth on that level, but wealthy enough that he can write his ex-wife a million-dollar check and not really feel it. Um, one of his ex-wives at least. <laughs> what is what are, what is the goal, right? What is the end game? What is the thing you are striving towards? And one of them is we get several versions of that. We get Pete and Trudy, right? right. Your jets, you can go anywhere you want, happy family life, happy professional life, very sort of, you know. But like how long is that gonna last? Well, I don't Pete know, but like again? for the moment of the show. You know, I think it's interesting that they we get them in transit, not in Wichita. 
Mm. Like we, we get their last shot is them running to the plane, yeah. not actually sort of sitting around in Wichita in February, which um, good luck with that. You know, <laughs> right. we get Roger and Marie Calvé in, in Montreal reading the newspaper as sort of retirees, you know, sort of anticipating a long life together of dotage saying, you know, she's like, we'll be there someday, you know, kind of looking at a future self. But we don't have a really good answer for what What if it's not just romantic heterosexual love or professional development or playing golf in Boca? And Don never really finds that. Mm-hmm. And whatever it is he finds there at the end, I think whatever that smile he gives at the end is he found something. And I don't know what it is. Um, I'm going to resist very vociferously, especially in I read think pieces on the Internet, that anyone can tell me exactly what it is. But it's something, right? I think we're supposed to be told that he finds something. Um. And whether or not it's just he found it out for himself or if it really is this hippy-dippy, give everyone a hug, it's the real thing, and we can layer advertising on top of it, great. But the whole show from the beginning is about dissatisfaction, and they never really get there for him until the end. And like just how empty it is at the top, right? Mm-hmm. How little there there it is. It's, it's a really an emperor has no clothes situation to me. Um, but anyway, so anyway, what else? Who else do we want to talk about? We have to talk about Peggy and Stan. Yeah, I'm the biggest fan service I've seen recently. Yeah. I mean, even for Mad Men, real, very, I mean, I loved it because I like romantic comedies. Yeah. You know, I like them. I don't know why I was playing a Long Kong from the beginning yeah, with us. I, have, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it. Like in the moment. I was cheering and Muppet arming on the couch. Like I have not been that excited about a kiss on television since (laughs) uh, Jim and Pam kissed the first time on the office after all those years of buildup. And it felt kind of the same to me of like, Oh, finally. But the other side of it is that I, we just don't get a lot of great platonic friendship on television um, between men and women. And you you got Peggy and Dawn. Yeah, but that's also mentorship. Like, okay. I think th- I think it's different. Um, and Peggy and Stan had that vibe. Like, we've just we've seen them on the phone together late at night from their different offices in the period that they were working at yeah. separate companies, and they're talking about their lives, and they genuinely care about each other. That relationship really transcends the four walls of the office. And I wanted part of me wanted to see them maintain that just because we don't get to see that on TV. That's interesting. A lot. Like imagine Josh and Donna on the West Wing, but only ever as friends without the, which like, I loved the way that that storyline played out too, but yeah, we, we just, you just don't get I can that. See that. You I don't think- get these good platonic friendships. And so like, it felt like it was a service to television all those years mm. to show Peggy and Stan together. But my heart was very happy when Peggy and Stan had their moment because I think Stan sees Peggy in a way that no one else does. And yeah. part of partially because she's allowed him to, but also because he really understands something about her on a, a they're, they're peers, they're equals in a lot of ways. And he's not trying to teach her anything. And he's also not trying to get anything from her. He is just interested and cares about yeah, he her. He just and likes they, her. Yeah, he just likes her even like even when he wants to wring her neck like he tells her and they've they've come through weird bumpy moments. She gets wasted in this episode and right. tells him that his life is just evidence of a lack of ambition and he knows that she's just drunk. Uh, or she he says say you're, you're drunk. Right, you're going to need, need a good reason. excuse. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um and then forgives her for it. I don't know. I'm I think ultimately I'm good with Peggy yeah. and Stan, but I was so surprised that Wiener gave us that. I, I was surprised too. In, in hindsight, if you look at the the full board, though, I can see how not having Peggy not not doing that changes a little bit 
how you see the women, because then you have Joan alone working and Peggy mm, alone working, mm-hmm. right? Whereas if you get Peggy and Stan together, then you look at where the women end up, the diversity of their outcomes is wider, which I think is good, right? Yeah. Like, well, and there's no saying that Peggy and Stan end up together forever. No, absolutely. Yeah. And Michelle was saying, like someone was saying to her, like, that the, the, the ending seemed too happy. And she's like, do you think this is the, this is not the end of their stories? This is just the, where the show stops. Yeah, that's how, that's how I felt about it. Like, Roger and Marie, that's a great moment that we see right. with them. But we know Roger. He's a honeymooner. He loves he's, the honeymoon. Yeah, period. he likes yeah. the chase and the honeymoon. And he's not going to hang out with Marie for the next 20 years. Well, or he could. I mean... It could go either. I mean, it could go one of several. It's like, that's the thing I love about the show is I could watch it forever. Mm-hmm. Like I could watch 30 seasons of this where you're just following the characters and new, some fall in. But the stuff. mustaches have to go. Yeah, that was my favorite thing about the show ending <laughs> is that I don't have to look at the mustaches anymore. Uh, that That's one I thought for sure. Um, we get, we don't have to end. I'm glad we didn't have to end. Our last Sally wasn't crying with her mom's letter at her chest. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I thought that was a powerful place to stop the Sally story because we sort of – she's had the baton quite literally passed. And her mom takes her seriously and trusts her with this work um, of handling her, her death and her dying. Um, but then we do see her, you know, sort of return and, you know, go back home and want to take care of her mom and be there for her brothers and, you know, <sighs> tough road ahead. But like – as Don says, at one point, Don says to Peggy, I don't worry. I worry about a lot of things, but I don't worry about you. For the show, I've always felt like I worry about a lot of things, but I'd never really worried about Sally somehow. Mm-hmm. But maybe that was just me. Like she had, even when she was misbehaving, it was for good reasons. <laughs> like, I don't know if that makes any sense. But <laughs> No, I agree. Sally always seemed to have a certain level of insight yeah. about what, about her own decisions and her own behavior. Um, and when we saw young Sally, she was still very self-possessed. I'm not worried about Sally. I think Sally's probably going to need lots of therapy, but I don't well, who doubt. who doesn't? Right, true. Right, yeah. But I don't doubt that Sally can and will make sense of the things that happened to her and like yeah. turn out okay. Um, now, Glenn, on the other hand. <laughs> Well, Glenn, I'm afraid he's going to miss Glenn's his bitter a, end in the 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 Mekong River Delta. I mean, I'm, yeah, that that was tough. Um, that wasn't the second to last episode. It was, was, I think, maybe the early. Yeah, the one early run up to last four or yeah. five. Um, yeah, but I'm glad they brought Glenn back. Like we got we got an an ending for Glenn. So um, let's say you're rank ordering the couples that and who makes it the longest. Oh, so we've got um, we've got Roger and Marie. Mm-hmm. We've got Peg. Peg and Stan. Okay. Uh, we've got um, uh, Trudy and uh, Pete. <laughs> Pete, man. And well, you know what? I'm throwing Harris Holloway in there. Mm. Just because like her her business, like as a, you know, her relationship with her business. Yeah. Or, or which which is more interesting? Which ones last the longest or which ones ends the, the soonest? I'm putting all my chips on Joan. Joan. I think Joan. The longest. That's gonna I, think, I think Joan goes the furthest. Yeah, interesting that her name, she said she needed two names to make it legi- sound legitimate, but it's her, yeah, it's her married name hers, and her maiden name, and, you know, sort of integrating think, those two pieces. I think Pete and Trudy make it to Wichita and last like three weeks. Trudy's before. in high school, or uh, Tammy's in high school. I was saying maybe, you know, like it's fun for a while, I get to play house, but I don't... Oh man, Tammy's not making it to high school with her parents still together. Pete's like having an affair with someone in the <sighs> suburbs yeah. three weeks later. I have two minds about that. I mean, I think Weiner was trying to signal to us when he sits down with his brother saying, you know, it's fun for a while, but then it isn't. 
I don't know. I wonder about that because he's sort of he he had he has the 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 relationship with the woman in California, but after that we don't see him really playing the field. He's has had his eye towards home. I don't. I see what you're saying. Yeah, but I don't. I we think get mixed know, signals about. Pete we do. I think and Pete's appearance in this last season. Yeah. Was a oh god. Go back and watch the first season. Yeah, it's a different. That it's a different thing. Like Pete has, he looks so sleazy yeah. in this season that I had a hard time believing him when he said that he was done with the fun. I think it stopped being fun, but that he's going to keep doing it. Like right. he's going to be where Don is in the early seasons of the show or like Don's miserable in all those affairs that he's yeah. having. He's not having them because they're fun, but he's empty and it's a temporary way to feel a little less empty. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to like dismiss his adultery as metaphor or anything, but it's not about, I don't think the show is about him just being a horn dog. Um, in those, I mean, I think it's about him trying on different lives, mm -hmm. um, and different experiences and different arrangements. And, um, since he is so good looking and women are attracted to him, that's one way he can try on a bunch of different, ex you, you think about, yeah, you think, think about his paramours as, you know, uh, you know, uh, a, a village beatnik and a school teacher and a wealthy business owner. Um, and you know, the woman and, who's the psychologist, right? You know, yeah. it's like as a real professional peer, and then Betty as sort of the the traditional family unit of the day. Like, think of the range of possible couplings he's been in as you know kind of an odyssey of identity is and i i found that a very interesting way mm, of thinking about yeah it. i i've thought about it as don looking at all the power that he has or you said you talked about white privilege earlier and so that like i think he's looking at this like bucket of privilege that he has and trying to figure out what he can do right with it and one of those things is use the use his appearance and his money and his power to you know have affairs with people and figure out if that's the thing that's going to make him happy yeah um it's don i don't think has had much insight into his own no. behaviors and motivations for most of the show and so it, it wasn't a conscientious trying on of identities but i think you're right that that's what he was doing he was trying to figure out that's it's the who am i and um what How can mean? I be in this world, right? Like, yeah. and especially since he's sort of broken the first barrier of liquid, of fluid identities by being someone else entirely to start with. Like, in some ways, the 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 floodwaters of having a fluid identity were already flowing with him when he became Don Draper. Like, mm -hmm. he made a decision that had far-reaching consequences, and one of those was a willingness or an or actually maybe an unavoidable slippage in who he is from moment to moment. And that's why, you know, interest, I mean, God, I think, I don't know that guy's the actor's name, but that gets the, the monologue about being in the refrigerator and the sharing circle at the end. Yeah. Yeah. But imagine Leonard coming in for character. that, like yeah. you're going to get probably the single most important speech in the whole series. Mm -hmm. And you have to do it in a chair by yourself, basically. Um, because that, that's the moment, you know, like that's the, the bottom. Well, no, it, cause even Don, Don in the final episode has like a traditional, like even an Aristotelian arc where he starts out on a high driving that race car across the salt flats of Utah. He bottoms out after he calls Peggy and he's literally immobile, right? Mm -hmm. He says yeah, he, can't he can't get move. Yeah. Like he gets stuck. Like the first thing he tries to get a car to get out of there. I thought that was interesting that he starts out racing at 180 miles an hour mm -hmm. and he bottoms out when he can't get into a car, which is 
great writer. I mean, that's just yeah, awesome Yeah, it's great. Writing. They're such good writers. But then he's immobile. And the woman comes to him and says, you know, come with me because I don't want to walk in alone. He knows about the politics of meetings, right? Mm-hmm. Enough to like even raise his hand to take it. But then that's his, he's at the bottom right there. And whatever happens in his smile oming on the cliff is enabled by that guy's speech, what causes him to go over and hug him out, right? And a powerful speech, I mean, I think one that is really, for people who pay attention to their own lives, I think a lot of us have that feeling sometimes of sort of seeing other people, going through the motions of your life and feeling disconnected. And Don's whole life has been that. And to hear someone else say it out loud Mm -hmm. in words that the master storyteller of desire, which is what he is, right? Because that's what he does in advertising pitches. I mean, I thought that was an amazing moment uh, for me and and spoke to so much about that, that everything else about Don wasn't just sort of the the hard drinking, fedora wearing, good looking philanderer. Like those things all had sources in this other place Um, that even he who is great at articulating desires and what people want could never figure it out for himself and what the problem was. Yeah, I thought the show was so good with most of the characters at getting at how the thing that all of us want is to be seen and known and accepted. But that comes with the built-in tension and fear of what if I show who I really am to people and I'm seen and known and not accepted. Right. That's the risk of vulnerability, essentially. And Don has been really bad at vulnerability, but has put him, has found himself in vulnerable positions that he's been out of control of either like he gets drunk and, and he gets bad, bad outcomes like he right. does that whole Hershey speech when he's yeah, vulnerable right. and it like just gets complete he gets kicked right. out basically for right him. and he wants this like he right. wants to show who he is to people but he can't find a way to do it like genuinely I, I think he can't quite get brave enough through most of the show to do it because he like that he has that one layer of very real human fear of if right. I show my real self to people then they'll know who I really am and then they'll see that I am like terrible and not worthy of things that's the fear that everybody has right. but Don has the extra layer of they'll if they see who I really really am beyond the person that I live as now but that if they knew that I killed somebody if they knew that I took someone's identity if they knew that this whole life in which they've known me as Don Draper as this ad man is a facade to many degrees then what happens to me then who like then really who am I because he gets drunk in this episode real drunk and he tells those vets yeah who he is second to last episode Mm -hmm. right right in this in this well and Peggy says what have you done that's so bad, which is kind of mm-hmm. an interesting way of looking at the show because a lot of people ding the show and ding Don for being a bad guy because of the adultery. And it's bad, because not that sex is bad because it's, you know, breaking promises and so right, on and right. so forth. But on the scale of things one could do, you know, it's not, you're not a war criminal, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, 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 you haven't fleeced people out of tens of millions, you know, like a lot of things people can do. So like, I think his real fear is not that if I show people who I really am, I think his real fear is that there's nothing there to show. Mm. Like that he doesn't even know what there is. He doesn't even know what he is. Like he doesn't even know, you know, is he Dick? Well, he's not Dick Mitwin, but he's also not Don Draper. Like there's, there's no behind, there's no, there's not even the little guy behind the curtain at the wizard. Yeah. There's like yeah, just an empty void of it's like. how, like how much of this life that I've constructed is the life I actually want right. and how much of it is just the life I've constructed because I could. Right. And what do I do with it now that I 
have it or now that I have the moment to walk away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, the yeah, one, I, one piece man. I'm still wrestling with a little, I mean, I'm wrestling with a lot of it in a good way, but one part I find myself uncomfortably wrestling with is what is the, what was the deal about the last, the waitress with the kid who died? Like, why was that the one that set him off? Hmm. Like I was thinking, is there any reason that that was the one that led him on his sort of uh, walkabout? I can't really figure it out why that one was the one that really got under his skin. She, because she, I think it's because he sees her doing something like the things that he's done, like abandoning his family and sort of yeah, taking she's, out for the territories. Mm-hmm, she's left behind one life and identity and mm. is trying to start a new one and he connects to like the desperation of that there's something really desperate about all of their moments together and really, I hope I'm not as lost as she is I guess yeah and really thinking. really desperate about him setting off to go like he, he's basically stalking her like he shows up at her ex-husband's yeah. house and pretends to be the person that's you know from what the refrigerator company or something yeah that um, you've won a case of you've won a refrigerator and a full of Miller Lite like right. he only can he can only con <laughs> in advertising terms yeah, it's so, those episodes were so weird. And yeah. it is, I thought it was Don maybe wanting to see what it was like to be with someone who was as desperate yeah. or near as desperate or near like as broken or similarly broken the, yeah. in the ways that he sees himself as broken. And um, this like this time in American culture that Wiener is showing in this season was permeated by like consciousness raising. Like we mm. think of it as hippies and, you know, people doing meditation on cliffs, but like that was really present in a lot of culture at the time. And I thought that's what he was doing in the moment when Peggy a- asks Don, what's the thing that you've done that's so bad? Because right. now this is the, like, now that's the language that therapists use with people. Right. But we were just starting to figure that out. That's interesting. Um, now if you were to go into therapy and talk to someone about how you were afraid to be genuine, because if people knew you, they would hate you. They would challenge that irrational thought with, well, what is the thing that you've done that's so bad? And then let's assess how bad it really is or is not. And ultimately get to the fact that you are a person of worth and value who can be loved. Mm. Um, and I've, I read that as Peggy, like Peggy's been paying attention to some of that too. And Peggy, I think is doing work on herself that we don't see on screen. Mm. Um, but she's, Peggy had some serious heavy stuff in early seasons and uh, has been, she's had to have made sense of that. If she's going to do this thing with, if she sees that this thing with Stan is a good idea, a good opportunity, and she knows herself well enough now to turn down Joan's offer, she's out of the weird relationship with Ted Shaw. <laughs> like, yeah, I think Peggy's been, consciousness raising but on her own yeah that's interesting like people having to come to terms with their their lack or presence of inner selves is interesting too i mean i guess what the waitress maybe represents don Gray's fear of just sort of like drifting off into oblivion yeah like not having enough ballast at any way to like stay in the world you know it's interesting too that he he re- has he he reaches an epiphany because he's can't go. Like you can also think of his multiple of adulteries as being sort of in constant motion from one place to the next and one person to the mm-hmm. next. And he's literally without a car at the ocean, right? Where no further <laughs> running like is actually possible. on the edge. He's, of act- thing. he's actually he's actually at the, or at the end of a thing. Like there's mm-hmm, nowhere else right. to run to. There's no more identities to try on. 
Um, he he's reached the peak of his professional career or is on the precipice of like Jim Hobart saying, you know, you're going to get you're going to get to do coke like the pinnacle of his profession is to be the, the, the creative director that gets coke, the biggest American consumer brand um, in, in, you know, and maybe the biggest one in the world and the biggest one that's ever existed. There is no other Mount Rushmore for him to climb. And it's at that moment where he sort of looks out and he sees the plane, you know, sort of out there somewhere else moving in some other sphere. Um, and that, I guess that stasis or immob- immobility requires him to put down stakes and he doesn't even know if there's a tent to, to put in, you know, like, <laughs> is there a, a thing called Don Draper that can be in one place for any given time? Because the only way he knows how to live at this point is through constant motion. Um, so the, 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 the ad at the end. Mm-hmm. So the conventional, and I would say perhaps, I mean, maybe it's the right, quote unquote, right reading. I haven't seen anything that says Wiener told us directly that, you know, Don smiles, you hear the little bell, and the next, the next cut is to the, I'd like to give the world a Coke, famous, one of the most famous advertisements of all time. And the, I guess the connecting the dots one is that he has an epiphany, he goes back and creates that ad, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's sort of the, is that right? Is that the conventional thinking? You've read more think pieces than I have. Yeah, it is. There's variations on what is the epiphany and how deep is it. But the conventional reading is, we are to know that Don goes back to advertising and writes this ad for Coke. Right. Which can't literally be true. And the, the show has actually been good about not giving the fictional characters credit for real ads. Mm-hmm. Like you get, you get McCann is a real place. And like, we've seen real ads, like there was that Volkswagen ad and there were a couple right. other things where. Oh, no. I'll drop a link in um, to the show notes here, but Tim Carmody did a great piece this week about the real person from the real McCann uh, that wrote, the real Coke ad. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure that's interesting. But like, so it'd be unusual for the show for them to give credit for a real ad to a character. So do you like that ending? Do you like that reading that he went back and wrote that? Can you read into my rhetorical question <laughs> that I don't? <laughs> um, like is I, the wrong word, but anyway. I would, well, let me answer it this way. I would have not been happy with the implication that Don like, reached a hippie plane of enlightenment and stayed on the cliff in California meditating. Uh, I didn't want to see Don wander the country for the rest of his life looking for something or no right, shoes on. Yeah. Or racing cars in the desert. Um, that those, that kind of searching is just unsatisfying. And, and I would not like the basically deathbed conversion moment of Don Draper, like all of a sudden becoming enlightened about the meaning of his life mm-hmm. and staying at the Esalen retreat forever or like going, I don't want to think about Don Draper going into the mid seventies wearing bell bottoms and Stan's fringy shirts. Like right, that, making candles and selling them and right. Like who, Santa Don, Barbara, right. he, for all of his not knowing who he is and what he wants, he does come back over and over to knowing what he can do. And I am, I was really pleased with, I thought that smile was not deep enlightenment, but with Don having that idea for the ad and, and in the moment that he got the idea for the ad, realizing this is who I am. Like I'm a person who like advertising is what I do, that this is the thing that I am. And even here in this moment where I'm trying to escape my life, in every physical and existential way. Mm-hmm. I'm having thoughts about my work. I just had an idea. This is brilliant. I'm going to go 
do it. It's just, I, the, it's, so you're saying it's, it was the ultimate shower idea right there. It was, yeah. well, but it was also like this, the having of the idea grounded him in who he is, mm. um, is the way that I read it. I don't love the, uh, I don't love that it sort of erases the real people that really created uh, such an important yeah. ad, but I, I liked what I read it as saying about Don's life. Now tell me your feelings. Well, I, I guess, I guess what I, and I, maybe, maybe Winner will say, you know, that's what I intended people to get. And if that's the case, you know, I have all my problems with Arthurian. Like, if that's what we wanted to get, then why not just tell us that, right? Then why mm-hmm. all the hand wavy, let us figure it out, blah, blah, blah. I guess the other layer, maybe, maybe multiple things can be possible. And that's what's fun about it is I like that we came back to advertising, which we had sort of lost mm-hmm. over the, I mean, it was still about work, but we weren't doing sort of the interesting work about advertising that the early, really it was going on about, that was about desire and consumer culture and happiness and media and messaging and coming back, it kind of gave us a moment to think about it again. I, I thought it was an interesting thing to do for a lot of reasons. The one I liked the best is reminding us that even the show itself is a product of consumer culture. Mm-hmm. Like the show exists to sell advertising. Like Mad Men, it's a television show that has ads. Mm-hmm. And therefore it cannot be, there's no culture that's away from ad. I guess that's what I'm kind of getting to. It's like we think of advertising as being sort of a parasite on culture, right? That if we, you know, oh God, we, I guess we have to put up with these ads. But every all the culture we consume is commodified. And, and there is, un, yeah. there and is no mountaintop. I guess that's what I'm getting right. at. Uh, uh. There is no excellent. Because like, I was thinking about like, even he's still wearing a watch. They're still wearing clothes. They still call cars. They're still on. Like, there is no mountaintop to get away from it all. And to think that art is somehow divorced from that is naive and also potentially dangerous. But the the better thing to do is to recognize and integrate. Like, this is what it is. It is advertising and consumer culture is part of how we consume art and part of art itself. And there is no commerce on one side and art on the other. And that what he does is he takes a genuine feeling. And this is what he did in the very first, that, mm-hmm. that great carousel thing, right? The, the season one finale. Right. It's, it's not a carousel, it's a time machine. He took a real experience and connected it to a to a consumer product. And that's not dirty. And he does it dirty. in that Hershey meeting too, even though he's yeah. falling apart. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I like about the show is like, it's not come across as dirty. Like Don doesn't play dirty pool. That's what I always liked about him in advertising, right? Like he genuinely tries to find or discovers a connection between what he's trying to sell and what someone might want and tries to make it authentic, right? He's not a scammer kind of yeah, advertising Don, person. He, he talks throughout the show and from the very beginning about how the thing you're selling, the object is not the right. product, the feeling that you want the consumer to have. That's the product. That's right. the, that's really what you're Or the selling. feeling, actually the feeling they already have, you're just trying to connect to. Like mm-hmm. for someone who wasn't good at connecting, he on a personal level, he was really good at connecting to like the actual lived experience that a lot of people were having. Well, I think, you know, maybe some of it too is Don has that narcissism in some ways that prevents him from seeing himself as like everyone else. Yeah. And so he can write the, he can write amazing advertising because he understands what drives 
people. Mm-hmm. He just doesn't understand that he is people. Yeah, too. I mean, I think that comes and goes. Like, I think it's sort of talked around. I think it's interesting to look at, if you think about the ad that makes him smile and have an epiphany and compare it to the ad that makes him want to leave advertising, remember it's diet mm-hmm. beer. Right. <laughs> which the, the guy who's sitting at the end of the table is describing a guy that Don finds to be lost in a phony. He's always, his radar for phoniness is very strong. He's like Holden Caulfield of phoniness. People mm-hmm. who are selling something or con artists, like that's why he hates Duck Phillips, for example, and a bunch of other people. But like that felt to me like they were, tr- that was trying to trick people into drinking diet beer by playing right. upon their insecurities and sort of feeling bad about themselves. Or the Coke ad, if you think about it, it's, I just want to give the world a hug, right? I just want to connect with the world. And one of the ways I do that is I teach them a song, um, connect and give them a Coke and keep them company. And like, it's a, it's a weirdly affirmative view of advertising. I'm mean, not weirdly, but I think in a way, a, a, ref, a needed view of how advertising and culture works, especially. It's like, it's all part of the same game. Mm-hmm. Well, those I think those great pitch meetings that we got throughout the series yeah. where you see Don and eventually Peggy and the other writers understand what they're doing and why. And you also see them driven to make it really good. There are so many moments that like mm-hmm. the client wants a bad thing. Right. You know, like the client has Disingenuous had... Disingenuous yeah, trickeration. Right, sort of, right. Yeah. The client has had the bad idea committee meeting and has rolled in to Sterling Cooper and wants them to execute the bad idea. And Don and Peggy and the, the artists that they work with time and time again fight against that. Not because that ad wouldn't work necessarily, but because that's not good advertising. Yeah. And they can do it better. They can do it with art and they can make it genuine. You can sell your thing without playing on someone's insecurities. You can sell your thing by connecting to their memories uh, and those positive feelings and nostalgia with the time machine photo carousel. You can uh, call up all their childhood memories of sharing a candy bar with their parents on special occasions when you talk about Hershey's that you don't have to be sneaky and gross. And I think you're totally right that Wiener's been saying that all along that, uh, and it's not an accident that this is a show about advertising. No, it's, it's not know, an accident at all. I don't think. I mean, it just happened also to be a good setting with lots of interesting storylines and characters and angles. But like, if you think about it that way, is like on the one hand you have got sort of the machine of capitalism, or you know, as, as Ginsburg called in Howell Moloch, like the real, you know, the real sort of faceless, dehumanized capitalism, scary mm-hmm. thing of Marxism. And on the other hand, you have the way people actually feel and their actual experiences and desires and hopes and fears as, as the, the advertising person and the artist as an advertiser too, of trying to connect those two things of trying to integrate them in one thing. And like as Don's whole and Don's whole situation himself was trying to do something very similar of like, he's sort of this byproduct of unfairness and poverty and abuse but also has these very human desires. And how can he make those two things exist simultaneously without dissipating, exploding, turning violent, or or sedating himself with alcohol or, you know, the high of racing a car across the the high plains? I don't know. I I think I think that's really interesting. Like it's not it's not trying to reify some sort of weird Chinese wall between art and commerce or journalism and commerce. But like, taking it for what it is and mm-hmm. recognizing it doesn't have to be that sometimes mere separation kind of, you know, can cause things to see one gets to be good and one gets to be bad. And, and that the separation is artificial 
right. anyway. Um, which I think is what makes this, I think this, these kinds of ideas from writers and creators are what separate great TV from, yeah. from good TV. Like Wiener is telling a story and also revealing what he believes to be and what I would agree with are, are truths about the way that we live and the things that we want and how we understand our culture. And he's pointing at something here that we we like to bash on advertising in American culture, but mm-hmm. it can be done beautifully and it can be art. And the show is about these humans, but it's about this idea also where like, I think like you could look at like Aaron Sorkin's oeuvre and say he's interested in work and in ideas and how decisions are made and information is conveyed. And each Sorkin show has been about a different workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not quite, I mean, like I love the West Wing, Yeah, me too. but, but the West Wing is not to me an interrogation about the truth of politics and policy no. in the way that Mad Men is an interrogation of of culture and advertising and art in this way. Um, it's an, man, it's just so good. I'm going to miss it. I really am. I mean, mm-hmm. I miss the, the West Wing. When, I mean, at least I had three seasons of blah West Wing to, right. you know, I'm going to miss Mad Men probably in a way. I was trying to think, Michelle and I were talking, I was like, in a way I haven't really missed a show in a while. Like I like the wire, but I didn't really consume it in the same way. Like, you know, I got it on DVD and watched it one season and it also, kind of went through different sort of um, cadres of characters. So you could kind of pick it up and put it down. Whereas this one, I just, I don't know. There's Mm -hmm. the style was amazing. It wasn't like anything else. Like who knows that, who knew that just having people standing in doorways talking was so interesting. Like you think about how much of the show was immobile for the first five seasons, just people standing and talking sort of anti-Sorkin in that way. Mm -hmm. Not much talking, not much movement. Not much, when, uh, and, and mostly subtext. Yeah, There's yeah, no someone, subtext in Sorkin. No, <laughs> no, no. Everything is said right. in Sorkin. And someone asked the two of us on Twitter last week about liking Mad Men and would we recommend it? And we yeah. sort of got into how you have to like shows where, like, you have to you have to really like a show where not much happens. It's all character. It's almost an exclusive. <laughs> right. It's this is character driven. They live in their heads uh, and you live in their heads. I'm I'm really going to miss it, too. I still am missing Breaking Bad, Mm. which is interesting for being such a different show, but also um, I think a a big show about big ideas that was beautifully shot. Um, But you've said several times, and I would agree that the level, the degree of difficulty is higher when you don't have a gun on screen. Yeah, that's O'Neill's razor for judging TV (laughs) shows is uh, for for prestige TVs, especially it's like. If you have a gun, you, you it's like the Chekhov says. You, you bring a gun in Act 1, it's got to shoot it in Act mm-hmm. 3. But With there, violence, there's no gun in Mad Men. There are some interesting essays to be written, though, I think about like Walter White and Don Draper and um, the, these these questions of morality and who we are and what we want and the decisions that we make in pursuit of them, um, how you reconcile that with being a good person or not. Uh, man, I, I, you do, I don't think you did Breaking Bad, so we can't turn another no, I haven't done, into... No, the violence is a... I mean... Violence, I, I just am not. Maybe someday. I, I, I'm i sure it's great. I mean, everyone raves about it, and the people I trust uh, that like it, really like it and think it's great. I'm not sure I'm ever going to get there. But you yeah. look at the other, I'm just going to say, you look at the other contenders for a greatest TV show of all time. The ones that get thrown out, you know, get The Wire. Well, that's, I mean, mm-hmm. that's off Sopranos. the table. Sopranos is off the table. MASH. I mean, for for prestige drama, Game of Thrones, I mean, come forget about it. Uh, it's very difficult. The one that the one that I like, the one that it was brought up that's interesting to me was um, Six Feet Under. I don't think mm-hmm. it's at the quite the same qu- quality level, 
but also every episode began with a death. You know, like that's a different kind of stakes. Yeah, that was our friend Jill saying it's not about violence, but it is about death in some ways. And so the stakes are raised there. Friday Night Lights is interesting Mm. as a contender. Um, There's some weird moments in Friday Night Lights. Well, the spoiler alert, but you know. There is a murder. I mean, it's like... Right, and uh, it's a weird one. It go kind of yeah, like definitely strange. not a show about... Well, you know, now let's talk about that. It's not a show about physical violence in most ways or about syst- yeah, systematic yeah, violence, yeah. but it is in many ways a show about racism. Well, and there's guns. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and the football is violence. And there's fi- Anyway, yeah. we could go down that rabbit hole, but like, <laughs> I think what I was trying to say about Mad Men was just throwing it into relief against what right. we normally consider as prestige television that what it does is so different on just mm-hmm. a different level of it's going to be mostly set, especially the, when it had no budget in the beginning. It was all in sound stages. You know, there's no special effects. There's no action. It's all tension. It's just mm-hmm. tension, 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 tension the whole time. And I think if the finale was satisfying is a lot of that tension was, you know, combined and resolved. But not in a – it wasn't wrapped up and zippered up and presented. Like it feels good and you can kind of let it go. You know, yeah, you can you know where these characters are right now, but you can wonder about what happens to them. Yeah, you know, there's not after. a cliffhanger where like there's an actual question that needs resolving, like plot wise. Like you get the emotional beats you need without having everything sort of uh, tied mm-hmm. up. Which is the Six Feet Under finale really did that. If you haven't, well, I won't right. spoil that. Yeah. If you haven't seen Six Feet Under, but if you have seen it, you know what I'm talking about. What they do with the finale, like there's no. There's no questions. <laughs> uh, well, that was fun. It was fun. I feel like we could go for another hour, but we got to get going here. There's, <laughs> there's other days to do. So uh, I doubt we'll have another occasion to do this because what yeah. else, what other madmen are we going to get? I don't even know what we would, we would talk about. Yeah. I know, some I'd, other I'd... time. A singular experience for a singular show. Absolutely. All right. Let's end it there. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye.